What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, listeners, I wanted to let you know about a wonderful cause I'm participating in on the Get Vocal platform on June 6, 2020. On that day, I will be joining many of my friends in supporting Tawny Plattis, host of the Death is Hilarious podcast. Tawny, along with her husband George, previously hosted the Dirty Bits podcast until George passed away on November 8, 2019. Thanks to our friend COVID, we have not been able to be there for Tawny in the way that we would like, so, so we came together and decided to raise funds to help cover the extensive medical bills Tawny has accumulated. I'll be giving away merch, and you can even bid to have a private 30-minute Zoom call with me. Links will be in the show notes so you can donate to the GoFundMe and create your Get Vocal account to join us. I can't wait to see you there. My missing persons case is 17-year-old Alyssa Marie Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. On this episode, we're going to tackle a mystery out of Phoenix, Arizona, with a lot of disturbing twists and turns, 17-year-old Alyssa Turney vanished. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Marie Turney. Disappearance of Alyssa Turney. And today's a really exciting episode because we are talking about the case of Alyssa Turney. Okay, so today we are doing, um, Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Marie Turney was a 17-year-old from Phoenix, Arizona. And someone reached out to me there and said, would you please cover the story of my missing sister? And ever since, I have essentially been uh, in contact, I think daily, with uh, Sarah. Her name is Sarah Turney, and her sister is Alyssa. But do the clues to Alyssa's disappearance point much closer to home? Mike was watching his own children through a video camera. Alyssa had told them very graphic things, very disturbing things. Secret home movies, a warehouse packed with evidence, and a cold case that turns hot. Again, there's only two people that can confirm whether I did it. One is me, and the other is Alyssa. A family torn apart. My name is Sarah Turney, and you might have heard of my sister Alyssa's story before. Be there at the deathbed, Sarah, and I'll give you all the honest answers you want to hear. Why aren't you giving them to me now? Because you got them now. But I promise that you've never heard it like this. On Voices for Justice, I'm going to dive deep into Alyssa's case like never before. Dad! Dad's a pervert! I'm going to interview people you've never heard from, and I'm going to expose more about the police, my family, and myself than ever before. I'm not asking you to move forward on it. I'm asking you to acknowledge that he wasn't briefed on the case, which you're not going to do, and I understand, but he wasn't. He said that he was aware that there were no sexual allegations, which is completely crazy to me because there's over 25 people in your documents that allege this. So when he says that, I don't know what he's talking about. I've held back a lot for a long time, and I'm ready to release it on my own terms. The police told me that my best chance is media exposure, and I've been working for years to amplify my voice through others. But now, I'm ready to make some noise. Subscribe to Voices for Justice today on iTunes and most podcast players. Allegations, as you say. 
this, I had told them very graphic things, very disturbing things. So that may have been what Sergeant Corus was referring to. There were no specific acts that anybody was aware of. Okay, whatever you'd like to say, I'm not going to go round and round. It's all email is public record, and I'm happy with that. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Florida is not a stranger to violent and shocking crimes, but one crime in Tampa is still remembered for its brutality over 30 years later. What caused a meek, mild-mannered man to slaughter an entire family? including an eight-and-a-half-month-old fetus ripped from its mother's belly. Okay, on to the show. On April 11, 1989, at about 7.15 p.m., Newton Carlton Slauson stopped his 1972 Chevrolet Nova at Gerald Jerry Wood's apartment, next door to his in-law's house. His brother-in-law, Ronnie Williams, saw Jerry in the window watching for Newton and overheard their greetings to each other. Jerry told his co-worker Newton to come on up and Newton asked Jerry if he wanted a beer. Jerry said no and Newton climbed the stairs. Approximately 15 minutes later, Ronnie saw Newton calmly leave. Ronnie didn't think much of it and went about his evening. Two hours after Ronnie saw Newton leave, his brother Curtis was going in the back door when he saw his sister Peggy, Jerry's wife, lying on the concrete bleeding profusely. He ran to get their mother, then ran next door to the neighbor's house to get help. Her mother provided Peggy with a blanket and a pillow while waiting on the ambulance. Curtis ran to the apartment with their father, Raymond, on his heels. Raymond ran back down, crying, My God, my babies are dead. In her mother's arms, Peggy whispered weakly, Newt did it. Peggy, who was 21 years old, was eventually taken to Tampa General Hospital by helicopter, where she died 14 hours later after surgery. She had been shot three times and her abdomen had been sliced open. Meanwhile, in the apartment over a garage, first responders found 23-year-old Jerry Wood dead from a stab wound. The couple's two small children, 4-year-old Jennifer Lynn Wood and 3-year-old Glendon Matthew Wood, were found dead in their room from one gunshot each. Jennifer was shot in the back and died on the floor, while Glendon was shot point-blank, sitting in a tiny chair. Perhaps the most gruesome sight of all was the unborn child, lying on the floor near the coffee table. The bullets that struck his mother also struck him, and when he had been cut out of her womb, he had been cut. Based on Peggy's words to her mother and Ronnie's account of seeing Newton's car, police were able to put out a bolo or be on the lookout for the vehicle. At around 10.30, Detective Doug Burkett, after leaving an off-duty job, saw the 1972 Chevy Nova about 10 blocks from the Woods' apartment. He stopped Newton, who gave the detective no resistance. Police searched his car and found a 357 Magnum revolver and a knife. 
Newton initially told police he had only stopped to have a beer with Jerry, but finally admitted to them that he had committed the murders. While police tried to determine why he had committed such a horrific crime, Newton expressed a desire to die, so he was put in a special single cell under suicide watch in the Hillsborough County Jail. He was held without bail, and the police soon discovered that Jerry and Newton had worked together at a manure plant in Hillsborough. Newton was a veteran from Concord, North Carolina. Born in 1954, his parents were Harold Fox Slauson, a Marine, and Tully Lynn Newton Slauson, a housewife. When he was five, his parents were divorced and his mother soon remarried. He was described as a slight, quiet young man by some, but was also called the class bully in high school, frequently drawing swastikas on his classmates' clothes. Newton was obsessed with guns, a fascination that began when he served in the military. He joined the Army in 1974 and served as a mechanic at Fort Bragg until 1976. He left the Army in 1976 and joined the Navy in 1978. He was given a summary court-martial in 1980. This is the lowest form of a court-martial and is used to resolve minor offenses. It also affords the fewest rights for the accused. Despite his military record, mainly the years he served, Newton told people he served in Vietnam, although all ground troops had left Vietnam in 1973, a year before he enlisted in the Army. Newton seemed to go from job to job after leaving the military. While working in North Carolina, several of his former co-workers thought he would eventually snap. However, he had only been on the wrong side of the law once when he was arrested for a DWI. In 1987, he did have some run-ins with the authorities when he pressed charges against two different people for two very different crimes. He swore out an affidavit against his half-sister, Lisa Slauson, claiming she stole his wallet with $195 in it. The other affidavit was against Charles Wayne Sloop, accusing Charles of assault with a deadly weapon. He claimed Charles had hit him in the back of the head with a sawed-off pull cue. This left a wound that needed numerous stitches. Charles was found guilty and given 18 months in prison. After this incident, Newton wrote a letter to the Concord Tribune which said, quote, I hold only respect for our officers and for the systems of the laws they serve. In 1988, Newton moved to Florida to live with his maternal uncle, William Newton. While there, he took a correspondence course from Superior Training Service so he could learn how to operate heavy equipment. Unfortunately, he needed to take a class on one of their campuses, but could not get the money to do so. After being denied a federal loan, he got frustrated and told his uncle, quote, Life is funny. They will condemn you for doing wrong one time no matter how many good things you do in your life. You fuck up one time and that's it. After the killings, his uncle said one thing Newton said repeatedly, quote, I don't ask too much out of life. The only thing I ask is to be left alone. His uncle told reporters, I guess now that's what he'll have. While police investigated, trying to find some kind of motive in the slayings, the families of Jerry and Peggy laid them to rest. Jerry and Glendon shared a casket, with Glendon nestled in his father's arms, holding his beloved stuffed moose. Peggy and Jennifer also shared a casket, 
with Peggy holding Jennifer and Jennifer's favorite doll forever. The unborn baby, who had been named Bradley Joseph by his parents before their deaths, was buried in a tiny casket between the parents. The unborn baby, who had been named Bradley Joseph by his parents before their deaths, was buried in a tiny casket between the two parents. One tombstone marked the family's resting place. Two members of the family, Ron Currington, their brother-in-law, was supposed to stop and ask Jerry to help him check out a camper, but the owner never called, so Ron didn't see Jerry that night. Peggy's sister, Mary Pupo, was going out the door a little after 7 p.m. on April 11th to visit Peggy, but her husband stopped her to let her know a friend had called, and Mary spent the evening with her friend instead. Both relatives felt they could have intervened in the attacks. However, Newton was on a rampage, and the other family members could have been killed too. Newton finally blamed his rage on Jerry, stating that Jerry had offered him crack cocaine and tried to force it on him. That's when Newton got angry and told Jerry he just wanted to go home. At that time, Newton related to the investigators, Peggy intervened and said, No, don't sell the drugs, he may be the police. Newton said he went to the bathroom to retrieve his pistol, but when he tried to leave the apartment, the door was padlocked. He stated Jerry walked toward him with his knife, so he fired at Jerry, who fell on the knife. He went to the kids' bedroom and shot them, then returned to the living room where Peggy was screaming at him. He shot her several times, then realized he wanted to save the baby, so he sliced open her abdomen. When the fetus fell out, he realized there was no way to save him, so he left. As a contradiction to the crack cocaine story, police never found any in the Woods' apartment, although Jerry did have cocaine in his bloodstream. Newton had cocaine in his urine, indicating it had been several days since he had used the drug. Investigators never found drugs in Newton's car or room either. On Wednesday, April 26, 1989, a grand jury indicted Newton Slauson for four charges of first-degree murder and one charge of manslaughter for the death of the unborn baby. Assistant State Attorney Michael Benito said if the baby had drawn one breath outside the womb, Newton would have been charged with five counts of first-degree murder. On Friday, April 28, 1989, Newton appeared at his arraignment hearing, where his attorneys entered an innocent plea. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. As a reminder, as a patron, you get access to ad-free episodes along with patron-only episodes. And if you subscribe just a little more a month, you get access to True Crime Fan Club Prime. A monthly episode is released based on the topic of your choosing. So head on over to patreon.com slash tcfcpodcast to learn more. A month after the Woods family massacre, Newton requested a brain scan to see if he had a lesion or tumor that made him do what he did. His uncle told reporters Newton was worried about the electric chair and if he had something wrong with his brain, he did not want to be put to death. However, Newton said he was ready to die if there was nothing wrong with his brain and he was just a psychopath. By this time, evidence had been uncovered that Newton had been discharged from the Navy for a personality disorder 
but the Navy was reluctant to release their records. During a search of Newton's car, investigators found a copy of a penthouse magazine that had sketches of disembowelment over nude women. Investigators said they could not be sure if the magazines belonged to Newton or if he had created the sketches since they found them after they had interrogated him and arrested him. In August 1989, Newton's public defender Brian Donnerly discovered Newton had seen a psychiatrist several times while still serving in the Navy in South Carolina. The attorney contacted the psychiatrist to try to obtain the records, which would help if they decided to go with an insanity defense. However, newspapers at the time reported it was hard to have a successful insanity defense. The last one in Hillsborough County had been in 1976, when a former Tampa City Councilman, Bill Myers, was found not guilty by reason of insanity in the murder of his son. On Monday, August 7, 1989, Newton's attorney asked for a delay in the trial so he could better prepare for the defense. The trial was originally scheduled for September 11, 1989, but the judge agreed to grant a month or two delay. In mid-September 1989, Newton's attorney admitted he could have issues proving insanity. He told the judge he was having issues obtaining Newton's records, finding a psychiatrist who would prove insanity, and was working several other murder cases. He explained this was going to make it impossible to be ready for trial by November 13th. Additionally, every time the attorney called Newton's former psychiatrist, the psychiatrist hung up on him. The doctor said he would only cooperate through counsel, but never told the attorney who his counsel was. Newton's attorney tried again in October to get the trial delayed. The judge refused, but attorneys said they could not possibly be ready by November. The month of October was a busy one for Newton's attorneys as they attempted to quash his statement to the police on the night he was arrested. His attorneys contended he had asked about an attorney before questioning began, and they questioned him anyway. One of the statements that he made to the police that Brian was eager to suppress was, quote, I freaked. I started shooting. I went through the whole house shooting once it started. I just lost it altogether. His attorney also said that the search of Newton's home and vehicle was illegal. He said the search of the vehicle was illegal because a search warrant was not obtained. The car had been taken to an impound lot after Newton's arrest. The search of his room was illegal because they wanted to search for bloody clothes and spent shell casings but Newton had already told them he had disposed of the casings and clothing elsewhere. The next move by Newton's attorney was to file for a change of venue. He maintained that Newton could not get a fair trial in the Tampa area. He reported he had an air conditioner serviceman at his house who noticed he was a public defender. The serviceman said he didn't know how the public defenders could represent someone like Newton. The man also said, quote, He also stated that the state should take the animal out and shoot him to save everyone the expense of a trial. Based on this and other comments the attorney had heard, he surmised a fair trial would be impossible in Tampa and asked for the trial to be moved beyond the range of Tampa-slash-St. Petersburg media. On Halloween 1989, the judge made several rulings on the Newton-Slauson case. One of these was that the suppression of evidence, including Newton's statement to police after his arrest, would not happen. The jury would hear and see all the evidence in his case. The searches of Newton's car and room were also deemed legal as Newton had signed an agreement to search. 
the defense attorneys did win a trial delay, and the trial was delayed until March 5, 1990. In December, after a chemist for the defense reviewed Newton's statements that he had been slipped cocaine in his beer, his attorney said that this, plus insanity, would be their defense. The psychiatric records from the Navy did not establish a pattern of past serious psychiatric issues, just that he had memory distortions and that he saw after images of green lines from Navy radar screens when he was off duty. But his attorney said they planned to argue that the crack cocaine he did not intentionally ingest was the trigger for the violence that had been brewing for years. During the first week of March 1990, there were concerns that the trial would be delayed due to the court calendar. Also, the defense still wanted a change of venue. The change of venue was denied and jury selection began on March 7, 1990. Many prospective jurors were dismissed when they stated they could not see anything less than the death penalty for Newton Slauson. The state's case began with numerous witnesses, including the family members who saw Peggy Wood after she crawled down the stairs and across the yard to her mother's back door. Other witnesses included the EMTs who were the first on the scene. Royce Grant, one of these EMTs, said that the call sounded like a woman giving birth, but when he saw Wood and pulled away the blanket, he was stunned to see the gaping wound in her belly. Cornell Harrington, the second EMT, followed Peggy Wood's blood up to the apartment she shared with her family. He was horrified at the signs of slaughter he found. He found the two children in their room, Jennifer dead amidst their toys, and Glendon draped over a teddy bear. He then walked back into the living room, and that is when he saw the unborn baby on the floor near the coffee table. As other emergency medical responders arrived with more equipment, he told them, There's no one salvageable here. There's nothing for you to do. Newton's defense attorney said Newton started drawing pictures of mutilated people when he was 11 and had recognized for quite some time he was mentally disturbed. His attorney Brian said, He sat on the monster's head every day. He knew he had the potential for violence, but he kept it locked inside of him. He didn't hurt anyone. He didn't commit crimes. He restricted the violence to drawing pictures. But the violence was always there, lurking behind the pictures. It didn't take that much to push him over the edge. Brian did not believe the involuntary intoxication defense would work, but he hoped it would at least sway jurors to find Newton guilty of something other than homicide. When Newton took the stand to testify on his own behalf, he stated he did not remember the killings. He said one of the last things he remembered was drinking his second beer and his mouth, throat, tongue, and lips going numb. He said he thought Gerald had slipped crack cocaine into his beer, and then the next thing he remembered was standing in the kitchen, holding his gun, the air heavy with the smell of gun smoke. He said he went to Peggy to wake her up and then saw the bullet wounds and decided to try to save the baby. After he had sliced Peggy's abdomen open, he realized the baby had been struck by one of the bullets that had hit Peggy, and so he left. Reporters said that this was the first and only time he showed emotion during the trial, his voice shaking as he recounted his failed attempt to save the unborn child. Upon cross-examination, prosecutors asked if he just sliced Peggy open because he had wanted to commit an act like that for quite some time. Prosecutors also put the blame for the crack back on Newton, stating, The fact is, you went over to smoke crack with Gerald just like you'd done before, 
And then you did what you'd been wanting to do for a long time, didn't you? Newton just responded, no. The defense psychiatrist and the psychiatrist for the state disagreed on Newton's frame of mind at the time of the killings. Again, the defense stated that Newton was a man on the edge, and the introduction of crack into his system caused the rampage. The state's expert witness, however, said that no one but Newton could say what frame of mind he was in 11 months before and that insanity and diminished capacity pleas are a load of crap. He had studied criminals who had been acquitted due to insanity pleas or diminished capacity pleas, and his research told him that these people had manipulated attorneys and jurors. He had spoken to many of these individuals over the course of his research. On March 14, 1990, after a mere two hours of deliberation, the jury returned with five guilty verdicts, four for each count of first-degree murder and one for manslaughter and the slaying death of the unborn child. Sentencing was decided separately. In the closing arguments, the defense tried a bit of victim-blaming by stating Jerry Wood was the one responsible. Cocaine is the answer. It was cocaine that caused Gerald Wood to put cocaine in that beer, and it was cocaine that caused Newton Slauson to kill. However, State Attorney Bill James offered a very different view in his closing arguments. He planned the killings very carefully. I suggest that the evidence shows beyond all reasonable doubt that Newton Slauson is a vicious, cunning, cold-blooded killer. The next day, March 15, 1990, during the penalty phase, more testimony was allowed, including Newton Slauson's mother, Tully Newton. She had been in labor with him for three days, and Newton was blue into the day after his birth, which suggested oxygen deprivation. His psychiatrist said this could have led to the brain damage he diagnosed when he tested Newton. Tully added, I whipped him for no reason at all. I whipped him hard. I did tie him up. I did lock him in the closet. I was sick. I was not well. He was my whipping boy. I took out all my frustrations on him. On Wednesday, April 11, 1990, one year to the day after the massacre, Judge Robert Bonanno sentenced Newton Slauson to death in the electric chair. Peggy Wood's mother, Wilma Williams, said she couldn't say she was happy about the sentence because Newton had a mother, too, so she felt sorry for her. Of course, this wasn't the end. Newton's appeal process began immediately after sentencing. In 1993, an appeal was sent to the Florida Supreme Court, saying his statement to police should not have been used. He also claimed challenges to the sentencing and jury instructions. The court dismissed these arguments. In 1998, Newton appealed to the courts to stop the appeals process. He was ready to move forward with his death sentence. However, and although the judge agreed, the Supreme Court said Newton needed to be psychologically evaluated to make sure he understood his sentence. Finally, on Monday, April 14, 2003, then-Governor Jeb Bush signed an execution warrant for Newton Slauson. It was set for May 15, 2003, at 6 o'clock p.m. Right before his execution, the governor ordered to stay for a psychiatric evaluation. Governor Bush had received a letter from Newton's former defense attorneys stating Newton was insane. Newton was evaluated quickly and his execution moved forward. On May 16, 
2003, Newton Slauson was led to the execution chamber. Newton's mother visited him before his death. His last meal was fried scallops and coke. When asked if he had any last words, he said, no. At 7.10 a.m., Newton Slauson closed his eyes for the last time and died. Ironically, Charlie Wayne Sloop, the man who had attacked Newton Slauson 18 months before Newton slaughtered the woods, was killed on May 6, 1990 by his ex-wife's boyfriend. It was later ruled self-defense because Charlie had been threatening to kill her once he was released from prison on his probation violation. The death of Newton Slauson brought some small measure of relief to Jerry and Peggy Wood's families. Peggy's family continued to live in the neighborhood where the massacre occurred. They did move out of the house, moving to a white house with a fence and a no-trespassing sign, and several dogs. One of Peggy's brothers, Joseph, completed suicide just a month after Peggy's death. The tragedy, coupled with marital problems, was an incredible strain. Jean Williams, Peggy's stepbrother, married Joyce, who was also Peggy's cousin, in addition to her sister-in-law. Speaking to reporters in 1999, Joyce said her family had seen Peggy's ghost several times over the years. Joyce said Peggy loved animals and even plants. She was gentle-natured and smart. Peggy was remembered as a pistol with fiery red hair. When she was in ninth grade, she ran away with her then-boyfriend, Mark. They went to his home in Connecticut, where he introduced her to Jerry Wood. After she and Mark broke up, she and Jerry began dating, and they all remained friends. Less is known about Jerry Wood, as his family did not return calls to the press. Neighbors and friends said Peggy was excited about the baby and was planning a nursery. The apartment where the murders occurred has been torn down, a relief to those who remembered the killings. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClubPod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. And I'm your host, Lainey. <laughs>